A very dear psalm and a very precious song then for us to sing tonight, Psalm 23. Sweet to see all of you here this evening. We hope and trust you enjoyed your dinner if you were able to come and participate in that. If you had that Chick-fil-A sandwich, we know it's probably right about now that it's starting to hit your digestion. Maybe. Hoping, though, that you will be able to work through that. We'll look to the Lord and ask for his help. Why don't we do just that? Father in heaven, we come to you thankful for this Wednesday evening that we can gather. Thankful for the fellowship, the dinner that we've had together to sing, to pray, and now to come and open up your word. We ask that you would be our guide and teacher tonight, that you would help us to see what your word says, that our minds would be renewed our thinking would be changed, that it might be more biblical. If there are areas, Lord, where we need correction, may you correct us tonight. If there are areas where we need to be rebuked, may you be the one doing that. In the ways that we need to be trained and encouraged, Lord, bring that ministry tonight. We look to you asking for your help, asking for strength. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your Bible and open to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. As you're opening your Bible, our study tonight is entitled, Jesus Loves the Little Children. This is July. These are July family nights. We've taken a break and a pause in our study in Revelation so that this month in particular, we can take time together as a church to remind ourselves about what the Bible says about the family. The family and trying to look at it from all different components. We know the last two weeks, many of you were helped, really we all were helped, by what the Word says, and that then fleshed out into practical wisdom about marriage, marriage within the context of the storm, the challenges, the difficulties, all the more the intensity of that in the world in which we live today. Building then off of that theme, even maybe in the the avenue and spirit of those last two messages, we come tonight to a study where The title is, Jesus Loves the Little Children. In many ways, we're trying to just simply look at what what is God's view of children. We're going to begin tonight in Psalm 127, but I hope and I trust you're ready in your Bible to turn to a few different passages you'll see in a moment. Again, our focus this month, it's the family, family nights. We're always needing to be reminded about what God has to say on this topic, and even specifically with children, because the family is always under attack. You know that. I know that. It's an attack that's as old as time. Going back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 3, one of the enemy, uh, the devil's most favorite targets that he sets his eyes upon, that he prizes in his attempts to undermine and destroy, has always been the family. The family, again, in all of its different components. You look back to marriage already in Genesis chapter 3. 
moments after the first sin enters the world, you begin to see the friction and the discord between the first man and the first woman. How that then carries over into the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, with the first children and the very first sibling relationship. That's always been under attack. The result then for the world at large, and for many Christians, sadly, there begins to be confusion, disagreement, error in our thinking. Starting first with marriage, what is marriage? What is its purpose? Looking then within marriage, what are the roles God calls each spouse to? What is the husband to be according to God's word? What is the wife to be according to God's word? That's always been under assault. But so has this focus on children. A unique targeted assault upon children. Why them? Well, think they're vulnerable, they're malleable, easily influenced. And we see today in the world in which we live how the world has loved now to set its sights upon children. And I'm speaking children of all ages here, from the youngest of young children, even the very first moments of life, to children as they begin to grow up through adolescence, they head into their teenage years, all of that together with attention upon them. Children today are under attack. They are the focus of target. You've probably seen the way it's been documented and even tracked how uh, the world and even specifically those groups that love to identify according to a few alphabet letters strung together, how they uniquely have targeted and have begun to, in a predator-like way, seek out and groom and try to welcome in these easily influenced young people. Not only there, even you've probably seen reports how with things like social media, even the way the algorithms behind it all are built, how a young person, if given access and if left alone within a matter of mere minutes, the algorithms are designed to suddenly put before them content quite mature, quite beyond what they should be able to see. Of course, we've seen for so many years now, the attack upon children in, as we said, the most vulnerable of places within the womb and how the numbers and the percentages overwhelmingly demonstrate that when this has been done, at least since Roe v. Wade, 65 million they add up, how the numbers and the percentages demonstrate overwhelmingly that it's been done in the mat in the, the name and in the matter of convenience or comfort. Again, 65 million. A few generations. People that could have been classmates, neighbors, friends, that simply, they're just not here. This assault against children and really the attack against children, feeding it ultimately is really this attitude about children. It stems from a very low view of children. You've seen it, you've witnessed it, you've heard it. This low view of children effectively viewing them, they are expensive, 
noisy, maybe a little too active, so much so that they then are destructive. At times, yes, they can be entertaining and hilarious, but then there's the point where someone wants the entertainment to end, and yet the child is still there. With this low view of children beginning to simply look upon them, they're really just a burden, seen as something that will hold you back, seen by many as something that totally changed and altered, even ruined what was supposed to be one's life goals and life dreams. But then they're there, so with this low view of children, people then look upon them and think, how can I effectively cope with them? How can I just distract them and keep going? Friends, this is the air that we breathe today. I mean, haven't you witnessed this? Haven't you heard people make comments like that or express that attitude toward children? This low view of children, again, the air that we breathe in the atmosphere today. And yet the sad truth is that attitude can begin to manifest of all places within the church, among God's people, Sadly, that can happen. And of course, you and I know better. We can try to cover up or mask that attitude, maybe wrap it in biblical or theological terms, think and speak of our children. Well, they're just God's means to sanctify me. True, true, no doubt God uses them to grow us. But behind that, beneath that, feeding that, is that all that they are? Or have we subtly drunk that same water that everyone's drinking, breathed the air that everyone's breathing, and have begun to adopt the perspective, have begun to have the same attitude, and view children that same way, the way that the world does. Now, we're posing all of this tonight because children perennially are under attack and this attitude can seep into the church. And this is an attitude not merely that parents can have. This is an attitude that can be true for anyone. It can be, thinking about it, true for those who are older in the church. Maybe at one point children were in the home, but now they're long out of the home. But attitude towards children and attitude towards children within the church, maybe beginning to view them like a burden, like a distraction. Maybe there's a frustration inside. When I come to church, I have come to sit under the exposition of God's word, which is what we all have come to do. But could it be that with that attitude and maybe a frustration, you're missing that you could be a good model to these children? Greeting them, welcoming them, knowing them by name, asking them how their life is, encouraging them, letting them know that you're praying for them. 
can even be an attitude for those younger in the church. Younger as in those who themselves are young people, maybe just recently were in that category of being a child. We look out tonight, there are students in here. We'll pose this to you. Do any of you have younger siblings? How do you view those siblings? How do you treat those siblings? The brother, the sister that God has given. Think back on your actions towards them. The way that you treat them, the way that you talk to them or talk about them, that can be a good indicator of your heart attitude toward them. We'll ask this, are are you kind to them? Do you ever play with them? Ask them how they're doing. Seek to help them or share with them what it is that you're learning or what it is that you know about God. Or, as the sibling, have you been a bully to them? Or with your words, much like sticks and stones that do hurt them. There's the proverb that death and life are in the power of the tongue. As a sibling towards your younger brother or sister, your words can do a lot of good or they can do a lot of bad. And ultimately, you young people sitting in here tonight, you must remember there is a God, the God who made you, the God who sees all of these things. That you're accountable to him Don't you want to do what's right in his sight? Don't you want his blessing upon your life? In fact, what better thing could there be than to have God's blessing and favor? There's no upgrade from that. To be forgiven, to be loved, to be saved by him, to have his blessing, nothing compares. So with all of that said, by way of introduction, whether you're here tonight single or a senior, whether you're here tonight as one married with children or an empty nester, whatever it might be, wherever you fit in there, our focus tonight is simply this. Our view of children must not be cultural, but biblical. That's the main thought. And listen, we're preaching to the choir. We understand that. But the choir sometimes needs some practice or reminders. We're all included in this. All the more, again, with that assault from the world without, let's not let that attitude creep within the body of Christ. With all of that said then, where are we going tonight? A psalm, a person, Maybe a few principles. Rough roadmap. A psalm, a person, and a few principles. Borrowing, I think, what was said previously, this is sort of a sermon, sort of a seminar, sort of a survey. I guess you could say it's sort of something. But we look to God's word and seek to be guided and informed by it. So, with your Bible open to Psalm 127, we come to a psalm you're probably familiar with, a psalm that can easily be broken down into two parts, life at work and life at home. 
The first half thinking of life at work, why it's a life that's pretty busy, pretty productive and industrious. And yet as Solomon writes Psalm 127, and he thinks of life at work with all the wisdom and all the experience that he has, he gives the good caution. Again, for us in a world today, maybe ourselves seeking to be very productive, seeking to work very hard, and seemingly always being so busy. The caution he gives, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved sleep. You, you hear that, you catch that. Life at work, life that's busy, and the caution amidst the busyness, amidst the attempt at productivity. Don't miss God in the midst of it. In fact, recognize your own creatureliness. That's why even there's this comment about sleep. I mean, people seeking to be busy and trying to be productive, burning the candle at both ends, reading the latest books on productivity, trying to build into their life some method, some system. All that can be good and well, but we have limits. Limits where daily we're to pause and rest and lie down and recognize that's a gift from God because we're creatures. We're not the creator. But in this life at work that's so busy, Solomon then turns back to life at home. And I do think it's interesting. Again, this this mindset, this focus on being so productive, so busy, laboring so hard that he begins verse 3 with the word, Behold! Listen up! Those wired to be so uh, go, 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 let me get at it. Let me be productive. I got my plans. I want to get going. I want at it. Behold! Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. How striking. Again, even built into the Bible passage tonight, trying to grab us, get our eyes upon it. Uh, Because we could be tempted back in life at work, even bringing that back into life at home, uh, looking at children, maybe even our children, and yes, loving them and caring for them, but in the back of my mind thinking, but there are things that I need to get to, things that need to get done. And Solomon says, behold, children are a gift blessing from the Lord. Notice how that's a statement of fact. It's not saying that they can become a blessing. That they maybe one day will be this gift. 
thinking in contemporary terms, not when they get their permit that they'll then become a blessing or get their license. We don't have to drive them around everywhere. Not when they finally begin to start contributing at home that they're a blessing. doesn't say that. I don't even see the qualifier here that when they finally begin to sleep through the night or are totally potty trained, are they a gift from the Lord? I don't see that there, do you? No. And again, if there's tension in your heart hearing that tonight, maybe this is this indicator that this attitude towards children has silently taken up residence inside. Now, statement of fact, the way that the Bible, the way that God, because the Bible is his very word, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. A gift, a reward, a joyful benefit that he brings in marriage. Something that he entrusts to people, uh, to a married couple, where they then are to welcome them in, and they're given to them as a possession and as a trust. A gift that requires care and development. A metaphor even, as one commentator puts it, built into it are the responsibilities of parents as well as the value of the child. So we could end tonight and simply say, well, there's God's view of children. But I know that you know this, and yet not wanting to succumb to that attitude that can be so common in the world, and if we're not on guard, can creep up in our own hearts. Well, let's go then another route tonight. We'll turn from a psalm, we'll turn instead now to a person. Where I want for a few moments with you tonight to walk through some very familiar passages, but passages that record for us the life, the ministry, the mission of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, ultimately, if we want to see the way God views children, it makes sense for us to stop and look at God incarnate. How did he view children? How did he interact with them? What did he think about them? What did he say to them? What were his actions toward them? You can begin turning over in your Bible to the gospel accounts. Again, this is where, like a survey, we'll flip over to a few passages. But right at the beginning, I'll even say what triggered this in my mind was a very helpful uh, short chapter by B.B. Warfield and his selected shorter writings, volume one, simply entitled the chapter, Children. Or in that, he points out that Jesus never, in all of the gospel accounts and what we have recorded, he never taught on parenting. He never taught on the duties of children towards their parents. You don't read through the gospel accounts and find from him this extended teaching portion dedicated to the topic of children. And yet, as he lived, 
as he walked this earth, as he's going about all with his eyes set toward Jerusalem and towards Calvary, Warfield said, it's as if in life, act, and word, he elevates and glorifies everything and lifted to a new plane our whole conception of childhood. It's simply Warfield's way of saying, rather than having this low view of children, as you watch Jesus and you see the way that he interacts with children, by default, our perspective towards children is elevated. And again, in a unique unique flesh and bone way, looking at him, our perspective towards children begins to change. We might ask the question, how? How does our perspective of childhood begin to change by simply looking at Jesus? Well, number one, if you've never considered this before, he lived childhood. You realize that? In fact, turn over to Luke chapter 2. He lived childhood. He portrayed childhood. Again, you know this, but he didn't just come down from heaven to die on the cross on Good Friday. He didn't just come down out of heaven to the river to be baptized by John the Baptist at the beginning point of his earthly ministry. Now, he came down from heaven being born in a manger in Bethlehem. And as he enters into this world in human form, of course, he remained what he was, God. But suddenly now he assumed what he was not, human that uniquely born in Bethlehem, again, a miracle that never happened before, will never happen again, one of a kind, the incarnation, God in human flesh. You look at Jesus, you see the God-man. One person with two natures, divine and human, each nature having its own will, so two natures, two wills, and he enters into this world. Why? To save his people. Why did he then take on a human nature, take on a human will, take on a human body? You remember Hebrews 2 verse 17, he, he had to be made like his brethren in all things except for sin. So on this rescue mission to save his people from their sin, to be their perfect savior and perfect representative, he had then to take on a human body, to take on a human nature, so that in Bethlehem, there in the manger, there is again the God-man. And as then he is at 
the major, and he is this little child. He then began to live childhood, living childhood the same way that you and I lived childhood. Except again, one great thing that distinguishes him, the fact that he never sinned, but he lived a life like a child just like you and I lived life like a child. Look in Luke 2. In fact, it even records for us the stages of his childhood development. Luke 2, verse 16. They came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Looking ahead to verse 40, several years have passed, and we read that the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. A few verses later, verse 43, one unique account plucked out from his childhood as they were returning after spending the full number of days. The boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. You see that? Baby, child, boy, living through, experiencing all those stages of development. Peeking over into chapter 3, verse 33, we then see how he then was uh, the man. Sorry, not verse 33, a few verses later. At least when he steps forward to begin his earthly ministry, and he's about the age of 30, that he has fully walked through all those stages of development. Then thinking particularly about the growth, we read it in chapter 2, verse 40, but look back to verse 52. Luke 2, 52. Again, of the God-man. He is perfect. He is without sin. But he's a child who's needing to grow and needing to develop just as you and I need to grow and need to develop. How did that growth and development take place? Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, and in favor with men. Four different types of growth. He grew in his smarts. He grew in his stature. He grew spiritually. He grew socially. The very same way that as parents, we would hope to see our children grow and develop. Again, clues us in, we hope to see this growth. We ought to pray and make effort to see growth in each one of these areas. Again, to repeat it, intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. In this Jesus 
growing, developing, going through childhood, growing in each one of these ways, constantly, rapidly, remarkably. Yes, the perfect model, the perfect example, displaying how we uh, would ought to grow up, and he is the one who did grow up perfectly in these ways. Again, our view of children ought to be elevated, seeing he himself, our Savior, lived as a child. He experienced it. We might ask why. Early church father Irenaeus says it quite beautifully. He passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, a child for children a youth for youths. He became a savior for infants, a savior for children, a savior for youth. Him going through these stages as a real human, a real man, praise God, a real representative to obey rightly the way the first human representative disobeyed wrongly. Aren't we thankful for that? But he didn't just live childhood. Second, he loved children. When we survey the gospel accounts, keeping our eagle eye attention on children again and again Within the pages of inspired scripture, we are struck, we are taken aback by his love for and care for children. And again, isn't this so different than the way that people think of children? Even think of the way that people out in the world, those that are most important, Those that have the most demand upon them or have the most attention upon them. Those that are the the most powerful, the richest, the smartest, the most influential. Think celebrity, athlete, actor, business mogul, politician. Do they have time for kids? Of course. If someone's there with a camera and their PR person's ready to then make the pictures and the videos and the news reports be updated that they got a nice photo op with children. But think of it this way. Has there ever been anyone with a more important mission? Has there ever been a human that was more important? or had the most important work than Jesus. And yet, he still made time for children. Why? Because he loved children. You can turn over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. 
Again, these are accounts that we all have read, we're all familiar with, but maybe we've never strung them together in succession to see afresh the way Jesus viewed and loved and cared for children. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Again, in a bit of a survey-like fashion, Jesus, he's begun his earthly ministry. He's already performed one miracle and one sign. It says that he came again to Cana of Galilee, the place where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Royal official, and his son is sick. And he hears that Jesus is in the area. And he went to him. And verse 47 tells us he was imploring Jesus to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. You young people, you read that in one way. Your parents read that in a different way. Any parent in this room who's had a child become very sick, you know the intensity. You know the intensity of this dad seeking after Jesus. Could he but take a time and a moment to come help my son? that even the term indicates young son. And he is so sick, he is at the point of death. Jesus responds to him, even out loud so others hear, unless people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the royal official, he's not deterred, he's undeterred. Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus looks at him and he says to him, go, your son lives. And how sweet, the man believed Jesus' word. He didn't have to see the evidence of it. He didn't demand for Jesus to go back to the home and see with his own eyes what had taken place. Jesus' word was enough for him. Maybe that's good for us. To simply take Jesus' word as enough, it is sufficient to believe it as he says it. The man goes home. As he's making his way home, the account will then conclude that His servants come and they meet him and they report the good news. Your son is living. And he presses a little bit further, this uh, nobleman. Uh, When was it that he got better? And they say, oh, yesterday at the seventh hour. And suddenly the man connects the dots. The very moment, the very moment that Jesus had proclaimed, your son lives. The child is healed. He gets better. He's returned to his dad. 
Again, Jesus is on his earthly mission. He's going about to perform the things he needs to perform. And you would think with a dad running up to him and imploring and begging him, sorry, I have things I have to do. But he stopped, he listened, he heard the dad, and he took the time to then heal the child. Go, your son lives. Turn back to Mark. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We could turn to Matthew 17 or to Luke chapter 9 because this account occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the account in Mark 9 is especially sweet. Coming right on the heels of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus goes to the top of the mountain, but three of his disciples are with him. It's as if finally the veil for but a moment is pulled back, where they see and behold Jesus in his glory. He then comes back down the mountain. They come back to the rest of the disciples. A large crowd gathers around him. In a large crowd. Back in that world with the primitive, limited medicine that they had, to then hear that there is someone who can perform miracles. There is this prophet, this figure going about in the Judean area, healing people and healing them immediately. Of course, that's going to attract people. And you know, anytime there's a crowd, a crowd will draw more of a crowd. I mean, some of these crowds around Jesus must have been so full and even oppressive and demanding around him. And as this is going on, there's someone in the crowd, verse 17, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, It slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. We read in Matthew that This father speaks of his son, that he is a lunatic, and he is very ill, and often falls into the fire and falls into the water. We read in Luke 9 that this is the only son of this father. And for a long time, He, having been seized with a demon inside, 
an unclean spirit. In some way, they were able to pick up that that's what was going on. And yet the manifestation of it, it's as if when this begins to hit him and he is then seized, it's as if this child then falls onto the ground, appearing as if he is an epileptic with seizures thrown on the ground, grinding the teeth, convulsing, stiffening. I mean, for the dad, what this must have been like to see his son going through this all the time, to have to have to keep close watch over his son because the spirit driving and feeding this tragedy, he says he falls into the fire, He's probably got scars. He falls into the water. He's going to drown. And this heart of this dad, desperate, working through this crowd, approaching Jesus. And even the added sadness, I went to your disciples, but nothing happened. They couldn't do anything. And how, oh, by the way, verse 21, this has been happening from childhood. Jesus looks at the Father. He says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him, do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse, most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Do you see it? Another display, taking the time, helping this dad, and ultimately showing compassion to heal the boy and to bring him back up to life. Turn back a few pages to Mark chapter 5. Again, another account also recorded in Matthew and in Luke. Mark 5, 22 through 43, a lengthy account because in the middle of it, another incident occurs. A synagogue official approaches Jesus. If we were to read in Luke, Luke would tell us his name is Jairus. Jairus approaches Jesus because his daughter, only daughter, young daughter, 12 years old, she's at the point of death. Mark also recording for us, his name is Jairus, verse 22. He came up, and on seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. He implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. 
please come. Lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. This is where another incident occurs. The lady who had been sick for a long time, she approaches Jesus. She is miraculously healed. Going down then to verse 35, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, he said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John. They came to the house of the synagogue official. He saw a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child hasn't died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. They began laughing at him. Can you imagine being the dad or the mom getting that report that the daughter is dead, hearing Jesus say that she's not dead but sleeping, maybe taken aback by that, but then to see people that once were weeping then bust out laughing at Jesus, the intensity, the emotion of this moment, but ultimately knowing with Jesus, it is as if she's sleeping. Friend, with Jesus, death is not final. They go. He takes the child's father, verse 40, and the mother and his companions and entered the room where the child was. Again, we ask tonight, how does Jesus view children? Did Jesus love children? He approaches the body and he looks at the body and he takes the hand of the little girl and he says, Talitha kum. Get up, little girl. Like the way a, a dad will enter into the room and say to his daughters, time to get up. Time to wake up. It's a new morning. And what happens? Immediately. The girl got up, began to walk, for she was 12 years old. Immediately they were completely astounded. And not only that, as he gives them strict orders Not to say anything, he still expresses his care for the girl where he makes sure something's given to her to eat. Of course, she's a young girl. She's growing. 
Children get hungry. Children need a snack. Turn over to Mark 9. Two more accounts. Uh, three, sorry, three more. We'll go a little more quickly. Mark 9, uh, 24 through 30. In fact, back in the middle of this section, with all that's taking place, and right after the other healing takes place, uh, now a Syrophoenician woman approaches Jesus, a Gentile woman, someone who would be considered an outcast in that society. She comes, she falls at his feet, she cries out, she too has a daughter who also is demon-possessed. Please cast it out. Please heal her. And even the term used again uh, indicates for us this is a little child, maybe a toddler. And as he approaches her, he casts out the demon. The woman comes home. The little girl is better. By the way, I gave you the wrong reference. I meant to say Mark 7, 24 through 30. I told you tonight, it's a sermon, a seminar, a survey, and something. Mark 7, 24 through 30. Luke 7, you can turn over there. Trying to get this portrait tonight. How does Jesus view children? Seen through the number of miracles, miracles performed on children and the way he interacts with them. Luke 7, 11 through 18. That as he is heading into the city of Nain, he and his disciples they look and come in out of the city. There are some people walking, holding a dead young man, carrying him out, verse 12 tells us, the only son of his mother. And the mother, we learn, she's a widow. A sizable crowd from this city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and he touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Again, is he, is he too important? Is he too busy for this? Does he see a scene like this and turn to his disciples and say, I'm sorry, I can't get to that. I can't right now. One more. Turn over to Mark 10. The last passage will be in tonight. A familiar account also recorded in Matthew and Luke. Again, those always stand out to us. Mark 10, maybe this is even where your mind first went when you heard Jesus and the little children Mark 10, 13 through 16. It says that they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. 
The people are excited. They want Jesus to touch their child, to bless their child. The other accounts make very clear this includes infants. This includes babies. They come excited. But do you see what the disciples do? We read in Mark 10, the disciples rebuked them. They rebuked them. Go away, go away, quiet them down, take them somewhere else. Do you understand who this is? Do you understand how important he is? He can't give his time to a young child. He can't give his attention to babies and infants. They're crying, they're loud, they're bothering everyone. Oh, even in the disciples, the attitude of the culture had slipped into their hearts. And if that can happen to disciples who are that close to Jesus, we say again, it can slip into our hearts. What does, what does Jesus do? What is his response to this? In fact, we could put it like this. Do you want to make Jesus mad? That gets our attention. Verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was in Indignant. He was indignant. He became enraged. He became red hot with, of course, holy, righteous, just anger. The disciples think they're doing the right thing. Jesus looks at his disciples mad, righteously. Again, we ask, you want to make Jesus mad? Treat children the way that the disciples were treating the children. That brings out this response from him. Why? Again, to quote Ian Hamilton, the disciples were behaving culturally, not biblically. And so he says, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Jesus looks upon these children. He beckons them to come to him and he will make very clear, praise God, that in heaven there's not a sign that reads adults only. There's not a sign that indicates you have to be this tall to enter in, this old to enter in. No, by what he says, he's indicating that, of course, even children can be saved. And he wraps up even the picture of one who will enter into his kingdom, all in the framework of becoming like a child. And what does that mean? Not that you become humble like a child, because what child is humble? Not that you become innocent like a child. Not that. It's rather the picture of these infants. Helpless, needy, 
completely dependent upon another. That's what he's getting at. Much like the very first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize their spiritual condition. They can't merit salvation. They can't do anything to deserve it. They're entirely dependent upon God to rescue and save. So then we read in verse 16. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them, willing to receive them, demonstrating that this Savior is quite approachable for children. So we ask tonight, Do you view and do you love children the way that Jesus viewed and loved children? We could put it like this. If you say you love Jesus, you'll love what he loves. And we've seen tonight he loves children. So if you love him, you will love what he loves. And if he has a heart for children, you and I then ought also to have a heart for children. Even to add that he too then taking this same heart there at God's right hand with the same compassion, the same love, the same concern and care right now at God's right hand as a great and mighty savior and as a compassionate and merciful High priest. So again, we repeat the statement of fact from Psalm 127. Children are a blessing from the Lord. But our hope is tonight, having walked through this portrait of Jesus, that maybe now a new well has been dug, a deep well. That when times where you wrestle with this. We all do. We can come back to this well and drink deeply from it and think and remember how Jesus treated the children, that that then can shape the way that we view and treat them as well. So we've seen a psalm tonight. We've seen a person. Can we wrap up briefly with a few principles? Four. Nothing profound, I don't think, but it brings it all together. Principle, first principle for tonight, children are precious, not problems. Say law, pause and meditate. Remember that. Go back to that. We could think if Jesus were to come to our church, if he were to head to one of our care groups, step into one of our Sunday classes, would there be something or someone that would provoke that same response of indignant anger? Let's view them this way, that they are precious, precious in his sight, precious then they must be in ours. Second, children are 
polluted, yet people. Of course, we know what the Bible teaches. They enter into this world having received the sin nature and guilt passed to them. They enter the world sinners by nature and by choice. They are polluted thoroughly in need of a Savior. Remember that then. Remember then that because of that, their greatest need is to know the badness of their heart and to know that only God can give them a clean new heart. Be realistic then. And maybe as you see that sin on display and maybe as you begin to get frustrated, you could remember what the Puritan Arthur Hildersham said. Remember that you pass that on to them. That should humble us. But remember that they are people made in God's image, needing a savior, and treat them like people. Show them and direct them to God. When they're scared and afraid, model what it is to go to God. Help them understand that God hears, God cares, God listens to them. They too can pray. Might be simple, but he receives simple prayers. Build into them a Godward reflex. Talk to them even as you treat them as people and don't just talk about them. And let's be careful that we don't commit slander against our very own children the way that we talk about them to others. But talk to them. Again, I'm always struck by the example, the, one of the grandsons of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jonathan Catherwood. He said a, a thing that stuck out about his grandpa, who, you know, greatest preacher in the 20, uh, 20th century. He said, my grandpa always treated me as a person and never was too busy. And for me and my other siblings and other young children, the great doctor would look and talk to them and treat them as if they were real people. Third, quickly, children are, keeping the alliteration, plastic, meaning malleable, influenceable. They're plastic, so parent them. We think of the words in Proverbs that they are simple, meaning untested, untried, inexperienced, uninformed. Because of that, they're uniquely vulnerable. Pour into them then, shape them, mold them, direct them, guide them. If you need help with what to do or what to teach, walk through Proverbs chapter 1 through 9. Not only that, Children are precious, not problems. Children are polluted, yet people. Children are plastic, so parent, number four, parents need patience. So pray. And that's for all of us. Parents need God's help. Very quickly we see we're beyond our resources, and it's supposed to be that way. It's to drive us to prayer. But let's also then remember and pray for one another and encourage each other. 
Those of you without children or maybe your children long out of the home, be all the more faithful to pray for these parents and then even to pray for these children. That they can come to church and see that when they step in here, they see this is a different place. Or they're known, they're loved, they're cared for, and they're prayed for. Father, we come to you tonight asking for your help to view these young people, these children, the way you do. Bless the children in this church. Save them from their sin. Show them the greatness and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you use our love for them and our witness to them to help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.